heard the most beautiful Dharma talk on the way to the meditation hall. The sound of the cottonwood leaves dancing in the windy blue sky. No need to add any more. And yet, here we are. <clears throat> so Michael, the other day, spoke about the bright side of spiritual friendship. And I'd like to talk about the shadow of spiritual friendship. So kind of an overview here of what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk a little bit about the difference between adversaries and enemies. And then I'm going to talk about how difficult relationships can help us wake up. And then I'd like to offer five ways that we can concretely practice with adversarial friends. That's the flow. I want to start by bringing in one of our spiritual ancestors, Tori Zenji. He was a student of Hakuin and a good Zen master in his own right. And he wrote this in the Bodhisattva's Vow. We can be especially sympathetic and affectionate with foolish people, particularly with someone who becomes a sworn enemy and persecutes us with abusive language. That very abuse conveys the Buddha's boundless loving kindness. It is a compassionate device to liberate us entirely from the mean-spirited delusions that we have built up with our wrongful conduct from the beginningless past. With our response to such abuse, we completely relinquish ourselves, and the most profound and pure faith arises. With our response to such abuse, we completely relinquish ourselves, and the most profound and pure faith arises. I'm going to come back to that later. Sometimes a spiritual friend doesn't show up as a buddy, but shows up as an adversary. I chose to work at end of life because end of life challenges me. I can't ignore death. And I'm also choosing to talk about adversarial friends because they challenge me. I cannot ignore them. They are my liberation, ultimately. You know, and if you think about it, who really takes up most of our bandwidth in our mind? It's our adversaries, right? So it's really nice to think about the, the people that are easy and lovely in our lives, but really the nitty-gritty of our life is spent with our adversaries, or at least our, our ideas about our adversaries. So let's talk about that distinction between adversary and enemy. So a noble adversary is someone who challenges you to stretch and to grow. An enemy is someone who intends to harm you. Opposite motivations. And I think of a story, a couple stories of, of, of um, people who personify this adversary-enemy difference. Uh, back in the 30s, Joe Lewis was a boxer, American boxer, African-American man. And he had a match against uh, Max Schmeling, who was a German. Now, so both of these men represented something to their cultures, right? Um, Joe Lewis represented an emerging sense of African-American power. And here was this powerful, physical man. And he was going to take on Hitler's favorite, the Aryan. Well, now. Their backers thought of them that way, but that's not how they thought of themselves. They were friends. 
They had nothing but respect for each other. They weren't enemies. To their supporters, they were enemies. But they themselves were not enemies. They were adversaries. And in fact, they became such good friends that later in life, when Joe Lewis uh, was destitute financially, Max Schmeling, who had done quite well financially, helped him out. Came to his support when his, the people in his own country wouldn't do that. So they're not enemies, they're adversaries. Another example, and I wish I could remember this in more detail, maybe you can help me. There was a cartoon I used to watch when I was a kid, and I think the names were Sam and Ralph, and one was a wolf and one was a sheepdog. <laughs> and they would walk to work together, carrying their lunch boxes, and have this nice conversation, and then they would clock in, and then for the rest of the cartoon, they were duking it out, and at the end of the, at the, end of the cartoon, they clocked back out and walked away together discussing how the day went. Um, they were adversaries, they weren't enemies. And I often wish that I could do that with people. You know, clock out at the end of a, of a difficult time and say, wow, that was really something, wasn't it? Yeah. <clears throat> so how do we tell an adversary from an enemy? So we have to assess whether this person challenges our delusions or challenges our life. An adversary challenges our delusions. An enemy challenges our life. And mislabeling them is risky. Because if you mislabel an enemy as an adversary, your safety is at risk. And if you mislabel an adversary as an enemy, your awakening is at risk. And I think that last one is something we're really caught in in our culture right now, mislabeling our adversaries as enemies. We need our adversaries to see more broadly. And we've turned them into enemies that we want to eliminate. Think of our political life in the US right now. If you just think back a few years, it wasn't like that always. I think about when John McCain died. And at his funeral, Barack Obama, who agreed with him on practically nothing about policy, was there to speak respectfully at his funeral. They were adversaries, not enemies. They were on the same team. Didn't matter that they had different ideas. Spiritual friendships help us awaken to our true nature. And we don't get to choose them oftentimes. They find us. Mike said the other day at his talk, I know my silent retreat companions better than my chatty friends. You know, we, we didn't pick, Mike and I didn't pick each other as spiritual friends um, because we, we chatted about stuff. It just arose. It arose in, that, in those years of silence. We don't get to choose them, and all sorts of people arrive at the Sangha. Some you like, some you don't like. So the spiritual friends that arise in your Sangha might be companionable, lovely friends, or they might be adversaries. So think for a moment of someone in the Sangha who just bugs the heck out of you. <laughs> Just think for a moment. Pull, pull that person to mind. 
Every time you see them, you go, oh no. That person is your personal bodhisattva. They're the grain of sand that makes your pearl grow. An annoying a Sangha member can show us our prison walls in a way that a companionable friend doesn't do. They're, they're like a, a mirror reflecting our stuckness back to ourselves. They show us where we need to practice. You know, our companionable friends don't always speak the truth to us because they're invested in maintaining the relationship. But our adversarial friend, they don't have that same <laughs> restriction and they might really speak the truth right back to us in a way that others aren't going to. That's got a lot of value. And you know, since our practice is about transforming our suffering, we need to see it before we can transform it. And it's our adversary who shows it to us. The Dalai Lama said, in my experience, the period of greatest gain in knowledge and experience is the most difficult period in one's life. Throughout a difficult period, you can learn develop inner strength, determination, and courage. Who gives you this chance? Your adversary. I think I was, I was uh, interested in talking about this because I really was raised in an adversarial environment. My family was full of adversaries for me. And it, it's, um, it was a tough thing for me to live with. And it, it formed a lot of who I am and how I am in the world, how I resisted those adversaries. And it's been really lovely to be friends with Mike all these years because he's not my adversary. And so he doesn't push those buttons at me. And I can see when he doesn't react the way my family reacts, that it's me that's initiating a lot of this. It just goes in him and stops. Whereas in my family, it's a feedback loop. Mm -hmm. One of us does something and then that ramps it up, the other person, and it just, and so I start to amp it up and it goes to Mike and goes, pump. <laughs> oh, so this is me. Hmm. Our cultural storylines love to tell us about the good battling the bad. Here's the good people. Those are the bad people, and we need to duke it out with them, maybe even eliminate them, and that will make us happy. But that's not what our practice tells us to do. Our practice tells us that we aren't beings in conflict with one another. We are an interbeing. It makes as much sense as my left hand getting mad at my right hand and trying to eliminate it trying to cut it off. And we see with the eyes of inner being, adversaries make less and less sense. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote, if only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, 
and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? So I want to think about adversaries in a really different way than I've just been talking. So again, I'd like you to call to mind an adversarial friend. And as you do that, please bring to mind a person who causes you the most suffering. A person who follows you around second-guessing you. A person who knows your deepest fears and uses them against you. So, I'm not talking about your mom. <laughs> I'm talking about you. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about you. Every one of us has a core suffering. Some way that we feel less than, or excluded, or unlovable, or broken. All of us. None of us escapes this. And this suffering often comes early in life, and we don't know what to do with it. We don't know what to do with that. And we're two, three, four years old, and so we start to develop a bunch of strategies so we don't feel that. We don't want to think there's something wrong with me. We don't want to think I'm unlovable. I'm broken. So we come up with ways to keep that away from us, to keep that physical sensation of that deep core suffering away from our consciousness. But there is nothing wrong with us. That's a misperception. There is nothing wrong with us. But we didn't know that when we were two or three or four years old. So this, these strategies and this, this fundamental misunderstanding that caused our core suffering, this is our adversarial friend. This is our primary adversarial friend. And the, the irony here is that that adversarial friend arose to protect us. What does a three-year-old do when that pain comes up? A three-year-old comes up with three-year-old solutions. Oh, this is all my fault. So anytime this comes close, I need to get aggressive. Or whatever it is, I need to get angry. I need to get small. I need to disappear. And it probably worked for a while. It probably worked pretty well when you were a little kid. But here we are, all grown up. And if we haven't had a chance to look at that adversarial friend in us, we are playing out that same thing over and over and over and over again. This voice that sounds so believable, sounds so much like it really knows the truth about us and about them, and it kicks in just like that, automatically. And now 
how those habits that protected us harm us. And they harm us not because they're bad or wrong, but because they're automatic. Because they happen without our awareness. So, you know, some of us may have learned to get aggressive to get our needs met from that core suffering. And now that automatic aggression makes us suffer. Some of us may have learned to be angry when that core suffering comes up. And now our anger makes us suffer. You know, in my case, what I learned to do was to get really small. And now my tendency to get really small makes me suffer. escapes this. None of us. We all have our mud. This is our mud. I, I really love the way Norman Fisher talks about this. You know, he says, when you finally see that you are a complete mess, that's when practice can begin. Until that time, a lot of our practice is just trying to justify all those things. Just trying to make sure we don't feel that pain and that all the stuff that we do has some kind of reason and justification. But when we see that, no, this is universal, there's nothing wrong with me that this is here, and my mind is a complete wreck, then we can begin to practice. And since we have this beautiful practice and the, the um, metaphor that Ty has given us, we know that the mud that we have and the lotus that we have inter are. We don't awaken without our mud. So it's not like it would be better if we could go back and take all that stuff away. This mud, this adversarial friend, is our personal bodhisattva that is waking us up all the time, should we choose to. And our practice is to befriend this mud so that it can rest and we can be free. So here's the bottom line of this. Our true self, our Buddha nature, is that which pays attention. It's that which is paying attention. And all the rest, all the opinions, all the mental formations, our anger, our stubbornness, and our rumination, and our hurts, that's our inner adversarial friend. So the art of calming our adversarial friend is called practice. And when our inner adversarial friend finally calms down, that's called awakening. So let me say that again. The art of calming our inner adversary is called practice. And when our inner adversarial friend finally calms down, that's called awakening.
So Michael gave us a beautiful example of this yesterday. And I, I asked his permission to use him as an example. Um, well, don't worry if you tell me about it. I'm not going to share your stories, but <laughs> we have an understanding. Um, so Mike came in and uh, talked to you last night about when he tightened the form. You know, when we were all in here together and he tightened the form. And his understanding about that at the moment wasn't clear. The way he described it to us and to me was that his core suffering came up. And his core suffering is feeling like he's disappointing people. And that's, that's the core suffering. So he felt like, oh, I'm, I'm having, making too loose a form here, and I'm disappointing people. And so what I have to do to not disappoint people? I need to tighten things up. I need to get back in control. I need to make the form tighter. So that happened just like that, right? Without awareness, like we all do. All of our core suffering is there, and, and all of a sudden we start to feel it, even unconsciously, and so we go right to our tried and true mental formations and activities, and we do them without even knowing it. But what Mike did was he practiced. He reflected. He stayed open to the experience. He stayed open to that pain, and that pain itself told him what was going on and he had an insight and he said oh that was my core suffering and those actions i took were because of my core suffering and those are the actions that i habitually take over and over and over again so he saw it and then when he saw it he took action based on what he saw he came back to us and he said oh my gosh I did this. Will you please forgive me? And we did, of course. So his practice there was seeing what was happening, and then I could see the awakening on his face. I could see his freedom when he tended to that core suffering with his practice, and the tension and the suffering melted away, and he was free. Come back to Tori Zenji for a minute. With our response to such abuse, we completely relinquish ourselves and the most profound and pure faith arises. That's what Mike did. With his response to that internal, we'll call it abuse, it's too strong a language, but that's the language of the sutra. He completely relinquished himself. What he thought of as me, control, tightening, planning, no, he completely relinquished himself, and the most profound and pure faith arose. Awakening. Shall we get concrete here? Talk about some ways to actually do this? 
And it's one thing to talk about it in, in abstract. Mike's been practicing for all these years, and he's been putting these things into practice. But what do we really do? So I've got five ideas. We'll go to the buffet. Take, what, take off the buffet what works for you and leave the rest behind. So once again, call to mind an adversarial friend other than yourself. Right, we're going we're to go back out, out again, okay? Let's go back out. Although this could be applied, these techniques could be applied internally too, but it's a little easier to think about doing it out there uh, than in here. So the first idea that you might use is to see that person as a process rather than a state of being, as a, as a verb instead of a noun. What do I mean by that? Uh, when we think of someone as a fixed state of being, that's a jerk, right? <laughs> that person's always impatient. That's what we call in our practice a view. And one of our 14 mindfulness trainings reminds us to always be aware that we generate views and that the views are not the truth, that we need to drop the views. So the way I do that oftentimes is when I think I know something about a person, I start to ask the question, well, what's going on here? Not who are they, but what is happening? Uh, parenting uh, young adult children has helped me with this a lot. <laughs> you know, because young adult children, they're, they're figuring out on their own. And just because I've been through that stage, and of course I know what to do, they couldn't care less <laughs> to hear my solution, right? So I have to remind myself that they are in process. They're not a state of being. They're figuring it out one step at a time like I did. And so instead of trying to force them to be a certain way, instead I can support them as they take that step. So what would it look like to see your adversary as a process instead of a state? Might it loosen some self-righteousness, some certainty. You might experiment with it. Okay, the second way on our, on our buffet line of possibilities, give away control. Give away control. I think people are afraid to give away control because they're afraid they're going to lose who they are. They're going to be swept away. They don't want to be controlled by another person. So uh, Roshi Joan Halifax has, uses a metaphor that I really like, and I use it with the contemplative caregivers that I, that I train. It's, it's called firm spine, soft front. And in this model, you have a firm spine. You know who you are at your core. And there is nothing and no one that will sweep you away from that. This is the bottom line for me. I have a firm spine. Now, when you have that, then you can have a soft, open front, a soft, open belly that's able to receive anything that comes at you that doesn't hit that firm spine. You can roll and flow because you know who you are. So that when I know who I am, I can easily give up control and let someone else do it their way. But if it touches the firm spine, I know that I have to step forward and say no. 
But short of that, give away control. So what do you think it would feel like to give away control of your adversary? Number three, let go of anger. Mm. I love that metaphor where it says that um, being angry is like picking up a hot coal with the intention of throwing at the other person and hurting them. Well, you may hit them, but you will certainly burn yourself. And carrying anger is like that. You know, your adversaries might not even know they're your adversaries. <laughs> And so here you are holding that hot coal in your hand, waiting for the chance to burn them, and all the while it's burning you. It doesn't make any sense, does it? It really doesn't. <clears throat> One of the people that I, that I grew up with that was challenging to me was my grandmother. She was an adversary to me. And she would say and do things that now all these years later still come up as rumination in my mind. I'll bet you even a minute after she did or said what I'm ruminating on, she forgot it. Mm. But I held it. And I held that coal and I held that coal and I held that coal, burning myself for decades. Does that make any sense? Mm. What I've been ruminating about, they forgot. So how would it feel to drop anger towards your adversary? Put down the coal. Put some balm on your hand. Number four, help your adversary be more beautiful. I love this one. Uh, you're probably familiar with the sutra, the five ways of putting an end to anger. Mm -hmm. We have that in our sutra book and, and we use that. And it basically it says five different ways that we can cool our anger toward another person. And there's one image in there that I really love. <clears throat> so the image is, imagine you're very, very thirsty and hot and you've been traveling for a long time and you come to a crossroads and in the crossroads, there's a buffalo's footprint. And in that buffalo's footprint is a little bit of water. It's the only water that you can see, and you want to drink that water. If you were to scoop that water out with your hand or with a leaf, you would muddy it and make it undrinkable. So you get down on your hands and knees, and you put your lips directly in the water and you drink that water without disturbing it at all. And there you're, therefore you're nourished. What would it be like if we could do that with our adversaries, to make them more beautiful, to not stir them up? Dogen said, speak to sentient beings as you would to a baby. Ty talks often about speaking kindly. 
it's really a core of our practice, this making your adversary more beautiful. And it doesn't even have to be a person. You know, this, this bell, uh, after I bought that bell and had it shipped back to um, Washington from California, it got damaged. And I was really disappointed that that happened because it was a, a lot to pick out that bell and it's expensive and, and I really um, was sort of angry that it got that way. But what I did was I sat with that bell for a long, long time and I tried it this way and that way and that way and I found one spot on that bell. If I invite the bell right there, the bell is beautiful. I could invite it from somewhere else and the bell would not be beautiful. But I found that one spot that makes the bell beautiful. What would it be like if you found that spot in your adversary? The spot that makes them beautiful. And you only invited them from there. Number five, help yourself be more beautiful. What would it be like to be yourself even in the face of your adversary? I wish I'd known this when I was a kid. I remember when I was a teenager and I had long hair. I had hair. And, um, <laughs> and I went up, I was maybe... 13 or something like that and I went up to my grandmother's front door and she opened the door and she said oh hello, hello Jane <laughs> right? and I didn't know how to be myself I just crumbled at that and you can tell I still have that in me I still know that story I didn't know how to make myself beautiful but there are people who know how to make themselves beautiful, who know how to be just who they are, wherever they are. And my favorite example of this, I, I cry every time I tell this story. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a, there's a, a film of Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, going before Congress. Mm. Now, this was early in the years of the public broadcasting system, and their, their funding was very tentative. And there was this sort of bombastic senator that wanted to take away the funding. And they'd put on these, this, quote, hearing, because they had to, but they'd have people come and make an argument for why they should fund public broadcasting, in particular, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which was a new show still then. So here's this kind of cocky, bombastic senator that says to Fred Rogers as he's sitting at this table test, about to testify, he says, there have been people reading stuff all day long just get to the bottom point. Now get to the bottom line. Let's get this over with. And so Fred Rogers puts down his prepared remarks. And he looks at that man and he says, Can I tell you the words to one of the songs I sing to my children? And he recited these words. And I don't remember what the words were. But it was about being kind, about learning to be yourself. And he did it with such sincerity as himself 
He didn't change to fit that situation. He didn't rise to meet this senator's anger with his own anger. He was absolutely Mr. Rogers. And at the end of that, this senator said, well, you got your money. <laughs> so Fred Rogers gave himself the chance to be beautiful. I want all of us to give ourselves that same chance. I want all of us to be the beautiful person that we are, the necessary person that we are. I personally need you to be your most beautiful self. I can't be any one of you. I can't do what you do. And if you aren't your most beautiful self, I am impoverished by that. Don't be me. Be you. So let's end by taking this a little deeper. You know, good friend and adversarial friend are just labels. They're just labels. And the Buddha taught beyond labels. He didn't distinguish between adversary and enemy. He didn't distinguish between a good spiritual friend and an adversarial spiritual friend. Those are just tools that we can use, but they're not the deepest truth. There's a story about how the Buddha treated an enemy. Um, there, was a, a, there was a man named Anguimala who was um, a mass murderer at the time of the Buddha. And different stories tell different amounts of, of fingers, but apparently he would kill someone and then cut off their finger and put it onto a string around his neck. Some stories say it was 99 fingers. Some stories say it was 999 fingers. But Angulimala thought that the Buddha would be a great crowning achievement to that, to round out the number, so he came for the Buddha. So the Buddha was walking and the villagers had told him, don't, don't go around here. It says, this guy's out there. And the Buddha went walking anyway. And this man appeared. And he yelled out to the Buddha, stop! And the Buddha stopped and turned around and he said, I've already stopped. <laughs> it's time for you to stop.
And I can only imagine the power of the Buddha's presence against the deep, deep suffering of a mass murderer. But somehow in that interaction, somehow in the Buddha seeing him as a worthy person, not as a label, Angulimala was able to transform and he became a monk and he became a very good monk and he made restitution with the rest of his life to the people that he'd harmed. So the Buddha saw through, the, saw through these labels. He saw to the deep truth of all of us, that all of us have a beautiful self. But we're not Buddhas full-time. We're part-time Buddhas. So I don't want to tell that story as an uh, invitation to exceed your insight. You know, you need to be safe. You need to be safe. I don't, I'm not going to go take on a mass murderer. But I, I wanted to tell that story because uh, it is possible. The Buddha showed us that it's possible and that that's the deepest truth of this. So, we distinguish from adversaries from enemies. We talked about how difficult relationships can help us wake up. And we looked at five ways that maybe we can do that. I'm just going to name them one more time. To see your adversary as a process instead of a state. To give away control with your firm spine and your nice soft front. To drop the burning coal of anger out of your hand. To help them be more beautiful. And to help yourself be more beautiful. Once again, we'll end with Tori Zenji, Bodhisattva's Vow. We can be especially sympathetic and affectionate with foolish people, particularly with someone who becomes a sworn enemy and persecutes us with abusive language. That very abuse conveys the Buddhist boundless loving kindness. It is a compassionate device to liberate us entirely from the mean-spirited delusions that we have built up with our wrongful conduct from the beginningless past. With our response to such abuse, we completely relinquish ourselves and the most profound and pure faith arises. <laughs>